0: Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Gregory Galloway, author of Just Thieves, a noir tale of betrayal, revenge and existential questions. Think George V Higgins, Jim Thompson and of course Hammett, Kane and Chandler, they're all referenced in the novel. Galloway is an acclaimed young adult novelist, and his adult debut will certainly make waves. Let's chat. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. Lovely to have you here, Gregory. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Great. Well, let's start with a question about your influences then. I mean, I usually start this way with authors, but in your case, I think we can be very specific. You have a a love of noir. So let's talk about that. What is it about noir that's uh, so attractive for you? And when did you first get into the genre? It be,
1: it came very early, you know. I think that some of the first books that I really loved as a kid were like Encyclopedia Brown, and then I graduated to Agatha Christie, Edgar Allan Poe. But pretty quickly found the guys that I really liked, and that was sort of more of the at that time, you know, the pulp authors: Cornell Woolrich, uh, Chandler, and Hammett. And uh, Chandler has continued to be sort of just this big influence on me i returned to him a lot um and then that led to a bunch of other people of uh, george Simenon, uh, who i just devour constantly and you know like his his mcgray stuff but really his what he called his hard novels i really gravitate toward those and right you know they're very bleak and dark and very noir and then i just like the whole you know, I think the, the very sort of existentialist, if you will, sort of vibe of the noir writers. And then, you know, some of the some of the people as we get out of the 30s, you know, George Higgins, we can talk about. He's a big influence
0: on me and someone that I looked at. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about George V. Higgins. Um, just to, I think, give people a bit of an idea. It worries me a little bit, you know, that in the modern descriptions of books, we come up with an awful lot of things that are labeled noir when in fact they're not noir there's a big thing in Britain now with domestic noir and it just isn't They're psychological novels, you know, but they're not mm. in this noir category. I was just wondering, how would you actually define noir?
1: I think that noir is, as I said, it sort of, it, it, for me, it sort of cuts to the quick and gets to sort of these very existential questions mm. about identity, about fate, about our, our free will, if you will. And, um, if our choices actually matter. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of noir that you'll see sort of ordinary people thrust into situations that sort of every choice they make is another link in the chain of them going further and further into this sort of bleak world. Um, Also, I think noir plays a lot with ambiguity and that's ambiguity of identity, ambiguity of right and wrong and, even um, you know, I think that, that some of the Noir has a commentary on the American Dream, sort of greed and corruption yeah, right. which, yeah, which goes on. And you know if you look at a lot of the Noir Canon, a lot of that is you know wanting more, wanting to achieve more. you know you, you think about even postman always rings twice, mm-hmm. typically have a character who is leaving a past, often a criminal past or a, uh, impoverished past and looking for something better. And that, that pursuit of that better never winds up the way that
0: they want it to. Absolutely. Which is why it becomes fun for us. Great. I think we've established the territory we're going to be working in this afternoon. So this is good. Um, I'm just wondering how you feel about the distinction between film and writing. Um, I take it you love both and do you worry about that or is it just, you know, it's one thing. The same and uh, how you include it in your writing. Um, I didn't worry about it so much
1: with this. And obviously it's like I sort of pulled from film a little bit in the book and mm-hmm. pulled from fiction. Uh, it is something that I typically worry about. But I think in noir, it's like they're sort of interchangeable. And, and I think it is important to um, identify that noir, as, as far as I understand, was first used for fiction in about 1945, 46 in France, and mm-hmm. then quickly was applied to film. But but when it was first established, it was really about the American crime writers who the French then called, called noir, and that sort of set up around the same time as as film, obviously. But sort of the film, the film started post-war, whereas mm-hmm. the noir writers in America really started in the Depression.
0: Yeah, you know, I get a few books from um, Stockhouse Press in California. Um, Because I love the old noirs and I start looking into that. And You read books written in the 1930s and it's amazing how fresh they are and how uh, honest they are. You know, how brutally honest they are sometimes about life and about those situations you're talking about there. And you can definitely see the origins of noir there for sure. Um, So it's fascinating stuff. You started, though, as a writer for young adults. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, because I'm curious why you wanted to talk to young people in a sense about crime fiction if you like. That makes sense. <laughs> um, it does. I'm not sure I wanted to talk to young people about right. crime fiction, but I was
1: writing about young people and right. um I've always sort of been fascinated by that period in life where again it sort of comes back to identity whereas you're young but you think you're older you want to have the privileges of being older but you're you really can't you're still under the thumb of your parents and so my first couple of novels had to deal with high school kids and in fact just thieves um you know it really it really begins with a a kid just fresh out of high school who gets in trouble and goes to ask for a favor that then sort of leads him down yes, this road. Yeah. 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 And ultimately it's like I felt that this book um, you know, had more adult problems. They're still sort of in their 20s, their late 20s. So they're immature in a way, but they're more adult than the people I usually wrote about. So, you know, I guess I've graduated a little bit, but you know, I initially just wrote about those people and then that sort of got you know the audience became the high school kids but i wasn't necessarily writing for high school kids and in fact uh, some of my early writing people was like you know high school kids will never read this stuff you're asking a lot of them you know right unresolved endings sort of clues mysteries those types of things when in fact it was the high school kids who had the extra time to devote themselves to those questions and sort of
0: track down those leads that i gave them yeah it's interesting to hear you say that because I was wondering, actually, with a lot of children's literature, whether we actually lie to children in a sense that we don't give them these uh, expectations. For instance, life isn't resolved. You don't get nice, tidy answers at the end of every question, you know, and and that's not the way it works. Yeah. And
1: I think it was, you know, to my pleasure, it was a lot of the high school readers And some college readers who followed me on that path. And it was sort of more more of the adult readers who they're a little bit more impatient. So they sort of want things tied up and everything sort of neatly in a bow, you know, and they're the ones who sort of got more frustrated. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to get to those people a bit later. But uh, (laughs) when you came to writing this novel, was there any significant difference uh, in the way, you know, because you're now writing for adults? Was there a difference in it? I I didn't really think about that and sort of let the
1: story lead me where it where it did. Um, Ultimately, it's like I think I came came to think about that later on. And that was more in in terms And we'll get to it, sort of some of the influences that I really sort of show and obscure in the novel. And then I then I knew it's like this is going to be more for this audience and thought it would be for people who really devoured noir fiction, noir film and sort of crime fiction in general and, and knew that, that those are the people who, who I wanted as like the ideal reader.
0: Right. Yeah. I see that. So let's talk a little bit about just thieves to start with and tell us about the specific imp- inspiration for the novel, which is these two guys in the car. Yes.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> that is the inspiration, which is that uh, I really had no concept of what I was doing other than writing a scene with these two guys in a car talking about something of value and what right. they talk about is you know sort of what has value it's really not a monetary value that has worth to us it's the things that are sentimental so i had this scene of these two guys in a car and then that sort of led me to question who are these men mm-hmm. what what are they talking about what are they doing and i immediately thought they're sitting in front of a house and they're going to rob this house and that sort of led me to think about their character their relationship and then start thinking about their past and so ultimately the first first few paragraphs that I wrote are sort of you know around six, page 60 65 so it's like I sort of had to fill in a bunch and realize that they were in another town not their hometown when they're having this conversation and then that quickly quickly got me to the beginning which is you know their sort of their plans for this robbery are yeah. go arrive right from the get-go
0: yeah I mean how much do you want to say about the novel and the and the plot um i'll say this which is uh these are two professional thieves who
1: they have a boss and as i mentioned earlier that boss is sort of a little bit by happenstance, the narrator of the novel goes to him as a young man and asks him for a favor. And then to repay that debt, he has to start this life of crime, which starts off as robbing for him, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, so the narrator has a has a partner and they go from job to job. And um Frank is the the partner who sort of is the you know the surveillance king and sort of understands technology, how to disrupt surveillance cameras, those types of things. Mm-hmm. And the narrator is the one who actually goes in and gets the thing and they're sent to this other town and their plans for how they're going to pull off this robbery uh, is immediately messed up because of Frank's superstitions right And that puts them sort of behind, and then the minute that they actually take the thing that they want to take, which they think has no value whatsoever, they sort of quickly realize that a lot of people want this object.
0: Mm. I think that's a good summary. That, that's as much as I think we need to tell people about the plot, actually, I think, um, because we're going to discuss the fact that actually the plot is, is an element of the novel, but this novel is a much more philosophical novel in a sense. So we'll talk about those issues. How did you actually develop uh, from that initial idea? into the novel though Uh, a lot of writers will say you know i had an ending and so i knew i had an aim point and then it all sort of filled in but how did did that actually work for you yeah i'm sort of the opposite the minute
1: i figure out the end i lose interest right so for for me it's like a lot of the tension is baked in because i don't Hmm. know where it's going and i hope that translates to the page which is sort of the you know the suspense is part of me going along with the reader trying to figure it out um I usually write, um, scenes in a scattershot way. This book is sort of developed in what appears to be a scattershot way, but it's more in tune of how I wrote it. Uh, the difficult part for me was to, to sort of figure out the overarching time frame, which is like, what day does this happen yeah, okay. and stick to that. But I was writing scenes sort of as they appear in the book, except for those first paragraphs. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it is that sort of that through line of I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm in, I'm sort of investigating the scene as it as it is laid out on the page. And, you know, for me, that that gives me a lot of momentum.
0: And I, I hope that sort of translate to, to the novel as well. It does. And again, it's one of the issues we're going to pick up and discuss, because, of course, that's the question of the organic structure of the novel set against the fatalist idea, which is that things are set in place and there's nothing you can do about them. So we'll we'll certainly be discussing that. But just to look a little bit at the nuts and bolts on that at the moment, um, at the end of the novel, you acknowledge a lot of quotations which come from noir and um, you slotted them into the story. I think it's a bit more than that, actually, though, would it be fair to say that what you actually did was kind of slot building blocks, if you like, into the story, sort of um, noir characteristics, noir themes and stories themselves and kind of give them your own flavor. Is that sort of how you structured the book?
1: It is. And part of that was, um, you know, sort of the minute that I knew that they were thieves, I thought of like all all the heist movies and heist fiction that we've Mm. seen. And they sort of have these elaborate plans for sort of big stakes items. And I sort of wanted to subvert that, which is these guys are sort of stealing, you know sometimes valuable things but a lot of stuff is sort of trinkets compared to what you typically yeah. see in in a heist book or heist film um and and it was that was a building block but it was also it's like so I tried to I was cognizant of sort of the the different elements of of crime fiction crime film and then oftentimes tried to put a new wrinkle on it or in fact subvert those elements as well
0: yeah, absolutely. No, that's what it feels like. If it, because, as I said, you set it out and we know we're in noir territory. So the first thing you know about this is that certain things are going to happen in a certain way and it's going to get out of control. And that can't, you know, the characters can't be in charge of that. So we all know that. So you actually put a wrinkle on it then that means that we still can't guess what's going to happen next. Yeah. Because if we can, obviously it becomes dull and that, that wouldn't uh, wouldn't suit it at all. Let's look a little bit at the two protagonists, Frank and Rick. The title's a kind of truth, just thieves, in the sense that they are just thieves. And the book also doesn't involve much in the way of cops or anything like that. You know, this is about their story. So you, you stuck specifically to that. The point more about the title, actually, is though that it's a misnomer, because actually these are not just thieves. These are two guys, two real guys. And if they were just thieves, and that was some way you could define them the way, you know, I might say I'm a critic, but that doesn't tell anybody anything about me at all. And if I say you're a writer, it doesn't really tell anybody anything about you. These are actually two individual guys, um, and so they're not defined by their jobs, and they're not defined by the fact that they're thieves. And that's what the novel explores, really, isn't it? It explores their characters. So tell us a little bit about Frank and Rick. They're recovering addicts, and that—that's
1: how they meet, and that's important to their character as well. And um, you know, I think I think there's an old quote that that you know a character determines action. Mm. And I think that's true of them. Um, and R- Rick is someone who he really is um, defined by debt. And some of that is monetary debt that he owes. And some of that is obligation. He feels that he has obligation to his father, uh, who was sort of um you know, a small time crook in this town. He worked in the town government and sort of steals from the town government. And then his friend who he goes to, to ask for help, who, as I mentioned, he helps him out, but demands something in return. And so it's this debt that sort of ends up being this corrosive factor on him. And as he meets Frank, he pulls frank into this world and in fact the narrator the more people he pulls in sort of the more everyone is corroded by his life and um you know he's he's unaware of all of this and that sort of gets to the just thieves part which is you know he is led down this slippery slope that you know at the end he's something other than a thief and mm-hmm. all of that all of that is has to do with the this debt which just eats away at him and it eats away
0: at him. yeah absolutely and of course one of the things that you do although you define the characters we get to understand the characters we get to understand through the narrative a lot more about the characters and why they react the way they do uh, which of course is very important and very different they're very different characters but um you also have this certain sense of ambiguity about both characters and this is getting back to something you mentioned about the noir fiction and i, I just wondered how far it went actually because there's an ambiguity about the relationship between frank and rick um and i wondered if you were specifically riffing and i think that the answer may well be yes to this now i, I wasn't sure at the start but you know we had the censors and we had uh, getting around the haze code and everything and when you had films and and also if you look at the novels of chandler he's very coy about certain aspects of character um we got films like the big combo you know where there's a couple of gay gangsters in the background and you've got uh i mean even films like diamonds are forever kind of riff on that thing uh, that's mm-hmm. in the movies i'm just wondering you know did did you actually riff on the on the noir sensibilities there and the, the stuff that was in fiction already in a sense
1: i did and, and um you know i i did look at those and obviously they had, back then there's sort of nods and winks i think i'm a little bit more explicit than that mm-hmm. here but um I wanted to create the ambiguity and it sort of goes back to identity, which, as I said, Mm. I think is a major theme of noir. And and you rightly point out, it's like they couldn't be explicit about those things. back in the day so they suggested it and i did want to play off of that and you know it was conscious i wish i had remembered diamonds are forever i would have gone back and looked at that because that (laughs) that's a great example i didn't think of but i did look at the big combo i'm glad you mentioned because i did look at that a little bit yeah and and chandler yeah it's there you know and and i tried to i tried to flirt with subtext but have it have it obvious just not not in as many references so sort of if you glide through it it's not as important but it's there if you
0: look for it it is and i think it makes the reader work a little bit at at kind of getting their sense of the character in their own mind as well so you're also a bit ambiguous about time and place which is something again it's i suppose from a reader's point of view is you you kind of it makes you keen to find out but it's not really relevant at the end of the day in a sense is it please explain that
1: this was a conversation that i had with um my agents and a little bit with the editor he was much more uh accompanying to to not disclosing where it took place um because i looked at so much crime fiction and also i have a personal predilection for not naming towns where things take place yeah right um i liked it to take place in this sort of fictional universe Um, I did have some cities in mind, but I didn't want to mention them. Mm -hmm. And and part of that was, you know, I think Hammett does that where he sends sends somebody off to a city and doesn't particularly name the the city. And I sort of liked like that construct and so that it could could sort of take place anywhere. But for me, it took place in sort of this this noir world that that to name it would sort of somehow diminish where it's taking place. Yeah, I see what you mean. Sort of break the spell a little
0: bit, yeah. 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 And Frank wants to be in control. Frank needs to be in control. He doesn't want to be in control. He needs to yeah. be in control. And that's why at the start of the novel there's a dead horse. And it could almost be an irrelevance. Um in fact, most people would come out of the hotel and probably walk past it and that would be the end of it. Never think yeah. about it again. But of course it becomes a catalyst for a whole chain of events in the novel. And um Frank just wants to understand he, he needs to see a reason for almost everything before he takes any kind of step. And so this is what starts to throw the guys off, off balance at the start and why the caper goes a, a little bit wrong to start with. But mostly life is about random events. You've got, you know, deaths crop up. You can be unemployed. You can have illness or you can have good things happen to you, but they happen to you in a kind of random way. So this is the way that most things come at us. In the context of noir, though, what you've actually got is this kind of fatalism as well. And there's even less choice for the characters. Can you talk about that in the context of the novel? I hope I can get to that. And and for me, it sort of comes down to this concept
1: of what Hannah laid out. And he's not the first one to lay it out. But I sort of love his description, which is right. the, the world is this, this machine. And right. if only we could sort of pry the lid off and look at how it works, we could figure it out. And to me, Frank is sort of the embodiment of that. Yeah. He really, he wants to, to your point, he wants to control the action. He knows it's random, but he thinks that if you observe it long enough, if you study it, you can sort of see how it's working and then you can control it to your benefit. And, you know, I think that part of that comes from uh, his recovery from addiction, which is, you know, for me, that sort of this Hemingway concept, you know, the Nick Adams story, Nick is always doing something he concentrates on doing just so he doesn't crack up. And for Frank, it's sort of that he has to have this control to keep his life together. And that manifests itself in, in what the narrator sort of sees as superstitions, but they're not necessarily superstitions. It's just this, this desire to sort of control the action so that it can have the outcome he wanted. And as you point out in noir, it doesn't work that way he thinks he he thinks he can figure the game out
0: but the game is already set yeah absolutely and of course to some extent we all try to figure the game out and we we all wind up with the same results I'm curious because i was thinking about this in the context of something like um what a postman always rings twice which is riffing off of um as well the french novel you know and this no matter what the people do and no matter where they think they're going we as readers actually know there's this inevitable end And they can't get away from it and they can't get away from it in double indemnity and a whole host of other novels and films, you know, it's just there. We do have a thing though, usually in in a lot of novels where the, the criminal usually gets it in the end. And this is one of the things you mentioned when we started talking about this, the introduction, it's, I don't know whether it's an application of a kind of common morality or a kind of rule that we have in society, but there is a desire for resolution and We don't get resolution in life. Do we actually need resolution in fiction? I think we don't. And, you know,
1: I think some of my favorite things are are unresolved. And, you know, even some of my favorite films, French Connection. Mm. Unfortunately, there's a sequel, but French Connection ends with a gunshot off camera. You do not see what happens and you're left to sort of figure out who got whom at the end. And for me, that's a very satisfying conclusion to that film makes sense. I love it. You know, obviously the Sopranos is probably the the biggest of our time, <laughs> uh, non-resolved ending and people are still talking about it. If he had chosen a or B the conversation would be over. I think it, yeah. it's like, you know, and also it's like, you know, we all know how life ends and it's not going to end well for any of us. But fiction, you sort of put that end marker randomly at some point because you don't want to go all the way Mm. to the end. You want to show show the guy in old age or whatever. So it's like that that marker is random. So if it is more or less random, why it is ultimately unresolved anyway. So why not have an unresolved ending to, to my point? I think I think there's a lot of a lot of richness in that sort of in conclusion, you know.
0: Well, personally, I love it. But, you know, I scare a lot of writers when I start talking about that because they're very keen to say, no, but, you know, I end my book and this happens and this happens. And, you know, well, life doesn't. So why are you so worried about that? Anybody who says that should never be allowed to write a sequel then. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. So we think about bad guys not seeing themselves as bad guys. They obviously don't. Uh, But there's something more fundamental under there. If you look at noir for a start. Nobody has self-knowledge in a sense, do they? None of the characters. It's you know? true. And um, they they lack an, an understanding of how much free will they actually have, I suppose is the point, you know, and it, it shows up with Rick because you, as you said, you've got Rick and his dad's a petty crook and that kind of leads him in one way. And then that leads to, he has problems and that leads to an obligation. And it just, it very much spirals from there. We don't recognize criminals as having the same ambitions and, aspirations as us. But in truth, they do, don't they?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, they're they're really not that different from anyone else. You know, it's the, their choices have led somewhere that we perhaps wouldn't choose. But yeah, their lives are the same. You know, he wants he wants a, a middle class life. He, he doesn't have great ambitions. He just wants to be safe and maybe go to vacation in Italy once in a while and sort of have i think the the dream that we all have which is a safe secure life and and you know at one point he does wonder if he's who he is because of who he is or is he who he is because of his father and he really questions if my father wasn't a crook would i have gone down the same road and you know what he doesn't question as much as his relationship to his boss who is really sort of the the corrosive influence on his life. He can never get out from under his thumb, which just, you know, leads him down this horrible road. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So how do we, how do you actually, not me, how do you square the circle when it comes to the idea that um, there is a lack of freedom and choice? Um, and at the same time, you still need to make the novel organic or seem organic. And of course, that's always the issue with plotting. You know, it, it has to appear like it's random because life is random. I mean, it, that kind of idea that uncontrolled events rather than plot determine what happens next. How, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so for me, and I apologize, I'm going to mangle the quote from Karl Marx, but uh, Karl Marx says that we all make our own history, but we yeah. don't make our own circumstance. And for me, it's like for noir, it's like we're all rats in a maze. How we operate in the maze is up to us. But the maze was built long before we came along. And so for me, that's how I looked at it is like I can sort of can construct this maze and then have these characters feel like they're moving along how they need to move. And and for me, as I said, it's like I don't really know where I'm going when I'm writing. So it is me sort of like looking at these characters imagining how they operate within this world and then obviously making choices but for me it is a lot of i feel like i'm observing people <clears throat> behave instead of
0: creating them behave if that makes sense when it works that's how it works for me yeah right so is that a kind of intuitive understanding of the characters as well then yes
1: and uh for me, it's like I spend
0: a lot of time sort of listening
1: to the characters. So, you know, there's a lot of dialogue in the book, and that's typically how I get through characters. How are they talking to each other? How are they talking to other people? Um, and that leads me to a greater sense of them, and and through that dialogue, who they are and how they'll respond in situations.
0: Yeah, interesting. If we look and at that, more... that, I got from Higgins, by the way. That's a big. <laughs> That's well, a big okay. thing. well, then let's talk about Higgins then, as you mentioned him now, because I know he's one of your favorite authors. Tell us a little bit about that and why. Yeah. I have, you know, Friends of Eddie
1: Coyle is, is mm. one of my favorite books. But I also I, I like a lot of his writing and and I feel that he does that better than almost anyone else, which is sort of, you know, very little exposition. Just yeah. plop these guys down and have them talk. And you just you know, you just get this wealth of information from these conversations and uh, what he's able to do is, you know, really put together, you know, almost each chapter is this discreet, amazing gem of conversation, not much action, but the action sort of accumulates as you go through.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I very much kind of picked up on that in your novel, because there's a lot of if you take any chapter, there's a lot of things going on in terms of the discussion with the characters and the way you see the character develop. But there's kind of a bump of plot at the end of a chapter, if you like. It's almost like there's this sudden leap. So you get something that moves the plot along quite significantly, but it's mostly about the character development and the the discussion, the discourse that goes on in the meantime. So that's very interesting. That's sort of a thing you picked up from Higgins.
1: Yeah, and also it's like uh, another person who I really love and looked at was uh, Dorothy Hughes. Ah, and yeah, right. if you remember in a, in a lonely place, yeah. uh, which is a lot of dialogue. Almost all the action happens in between chapters. Yes, which, right. It's just amazing. It's just incredible how she does it. And, and that's a book that was written you know, almost immediately after the war. Yeah. And it's it's a lot about the impact of the war on this guy who obviously was a psychopath before going into the war. But the war accelerated it until he became the serial killer. And and, you know, now looking at it, it's a, very much a critique of sort of toxic masculinity. Yes. And almost all the male characters in the novel are seduced by him who thinks he's like this cool guy. And all the women in the novel realize he's this horrible person who they should stay away from. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Seen, I actually love
1: the all film that know. is slyly done in
0: in conversation, too, which is amazing. I think there's a hint there as well of PTSD, which is, you know, Absolutely. something that it's, it's not something that's talked about. in you know, nobody says those words. Nobody mentions yeah. that phrase. But um it's clear, you know, that the understanding was there. This is what I said about to you earlier about noir. There's such a, a wealth of social understanding in the novels. You know, I think they're far more important than just this idea that people have sometimes about pulp novels and, and page turners, you know, much, much more um, important critique in them.
1: Yeah, I think they I think they really ask the important questions and they get
0: they get to them much quicker than other other forms of literature. Yeah, of course, because that's the other thing. They work very much on the idea of of words matter. I wonder if that comes from the short stories as well, because a lot of writers started out with the short stories. And in fact, some of them made their money on the short stories rather than the novels. But you have to learn. Obviously, there's this real discipline about the number of words you can use and and every phrase kind of counting. And noirs are kind of it's really is that way in noir fiction isn't it words count yes
1: absolutely and and it's that that brevity which which allows sort of those things to be front and center you know they, mm. they just get as i said they get to those questions quickly and and pretty in depth to your point yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. I, it's why it's why you know um both Camus and Sartre were, they loved those guys. You know, uh, the stranger has a significant debt to mm. uh, Postman always rings twice. And um, Sartre loved uh, Red Harvest by Hammett. I think, I think the French obviously appreciated that more than we did Red Harvest, which is a very existentialist
0: novel. Yeah, absolutely. And of course the inspiration for so many novels and films. If we talk about life and, um, Life was a noirish existence, which I believe is a phrase you might have used. Yes. Um, is this because the forces determining life are random? You know, we get death, illness, unemployment, relationships go the way they shouldn't go, that sort of thing. Or is it just that this is such a dark place now because it seems to be a very troubled and divided world? Oh, that's big a big question. Qu- I know it's a big question. It's
1: a good question. <laughs> um, I would hate to pin too much of it on the times. I think the, the, the times we live in. Might accentuate that, but I think that's always true. You know, I think, I think that we, not to get too bleak, but I think that that we're very good at distracting ourselves from sort mm. of the darkness of life yeah, and really right. you know, our qualities of life. We sort of distract ourselves, but ultimately, that's what it is. Um, you know, we work very hard. We do things we like to think that our choices make improvements in our life, but ultimately do they? Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's something that perhaps more people should ask themselves. And even those of us who write novels is like, you know, and that's a hard question. Is that what we should be doing with our time? Are those the right choices that we've made? And oftentimes we don't have a choice in that, you know, mm-hmm. I sort of feel like, You know, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, My parents said, you know, I announced at four years old I wanted to be a writer. That's before I could actually write, probably. So, you know, (laughs) somebody put that idea in me, you know. (laughs) And it stuck, obviously. And it stuck.
0: Interesting, because I think there's something that comes with that as well, which I kind of got from the novel, which is the sense that um, as people, when we we have to kind of um, recalibrate memory in the past in order not to carry the burden of it in a sense, because there's, you know, so much goes wrong. If, if a lot of life is about failure, well, we'd have a suicide rate that was, you know, 10 times what it is now, if we all actually carried that burden. So we must be pretty good at recalibrating. I think so. I think that's, that's one of our, you know, it's in
1: our DNA. It's gotta be that we, we fool ourselves quite often.
0: Yeah. There's another concept that I kind of, It's a scientific concept, actually, that's around now, which says that we don't have any choice anyway, that no matter what happens, we're predetermined or we we, we will always react in a certain way. So you could take somebody, you know, you're going to get hurt if you do this. It won't matter. They'll get hurt if that's the personality they've got. That's a little terrifying, though, because it kind of implies absolutely no free will. And we do honestly want to believe in that, even if it's not real, I suppose. It's incredibly terrifying. I mean, if they actually if they
1: scientifically demonstrate that we don't have free will. That's, that's a very scary notion. Um, And it could come to that. And if you think about it in terms of just, you know, humanity, how much we've chipped away at our centrality, which is a, you know, we thought that the earth was the center of the universe. We thought we were the center of right. And it's like that's slowly been eroded. So that's sort of the final, final leg that we're standing on that can be kicked out from under us, which you know, there's going to be a lot of noir authors who said, you know, we've been telling you this
0: for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Finally proved right. Only <laughs> proved right. Yeah. Okay. I want to pick up on something else. I, I saw you say in a piece actually as well, about the Astors and the Vanderbilt's and something that that very much struck me before. Well, I actually, and, um, Maya Lansky was the other character actually, um, and his ilk, you know, it was about an equivalence, I suppose, in a sense. And, Brecht said, um, what is robbing a bank compared to founding a bank? And I'm just wondering, um, uh, do we do we recognize or should we recognize that these people are actually two sides of the same coin? You know, they're part of the, the, the corruption and everything else that comes with the society's institutions and things. It's all part of the same picture, really. Yeah, that, I think that's a progression that you look at in Noir, which is mm. is how much
1: the corruption... Is expanding over time. And, you know, the cops are corrupt, the rich are corrupt, then it becomes the entire system is corrupt, the legal system is corrupt. And uh, that was sort of the, the aspect I was trying to get at. And that is a quote from Meyer Lansky, where he basically says, Yeah, I'm a crook, but so are these wealthy people that you admire. They're bigger crooks than I am. And, you know, to his point, they stole and stole. And it's like, I think even Fran Lebowitz has a great quote about the wealthy, which is like, you know, but nobody makes millions and millions of dollars working. They make millions and millions of dollars stealing while
0: other people work for them. Yeah. 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 And so do you think that the and and it's clear you do, actually, I suppose. But uh, obviously, then the uh, noir novel, but the crime novel in general is an important social document. It's an important social process of social critique. I really believe that. Um, I honestly believe that.
1: It's why I love the genre. It's why I love reading it and, and hope that I contribute to it a little bit. And as I said, I do think that ultimately it's, it is a critique of sort of the American dream and what, which I guess we claim for ourselves as, as Americans, not just our dream. Everybody wants to have a safe, happy, life we like to call it the american dream but nobody in any country who doesn't want that for themselves so i apologize for using it that way um but in the american tradition of of noir and crime fiction that's certainly the case and you know that greed and corruption is there and you know it's difficult to have a economy that's based upon consumerism that doesn't Mm. promote greed and corruption yeah, very I true. Think, I think noir noir really gets at that critique pretty quickly. And and as I said, it's like a no, it's no wonder it came out of the depression because that's when people were questioning, you know, what the hell is going on here. Mm. Mm.
0: But um yeah, it's just very curious that some authors shy away from this idea of the social novel. And yet, I think it's very much that what makes crime fiction relevant it makes it for me more relevant than most other you know it's, it's called genre fiction but it's actually much more relevant than uh, than a lot of literary or, con- or contemporary fiction at the moment
1: i i i think that's true i think that's true and you look at people like you know dennis Lehane and um richard price and those people mm. i mean they're they're creating these worlds that are you know much more tangible much more approachable and you know i think much more relevant than a lot of literary fiction, you know, it's like, we don't need another novel. Although I, you know, unless it's amazing about like some professor in a university or some writer, some writer struggling to write a novel or something like that. I would much rather read, read novels that have to do with, with some other element of society. And, you know, they can argue, well, we don't need another one of a couple of crooks, but You know, I think they're more like more like people we
0: run into every day than the other. Well, you see, what you do is you deliver the serious issues and you create a thriller on top. I mean, that's extra value.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think what you said about the American dream is interesting, though, because it's a way of uh, um, a system protects itself by allowing everybody to buy into this concept. And um, a recent example of something that's kind of a small facet of that in this country is that um, everybody was terrified by what happened with COVID. And everybody realized how awful it was when people started dying in care homes and stuff. And then the vaccine comes along and everybody says, oh, the world's just been sorted out then. We've all got a vaccine now. and it's as if somehow the whole world just rebalanced. And it's bizarre the way people look for that sunny side every time if they can. Yeah,
1: it's like, you know, the miracle cure, which is, uh, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic has just ripped that large, which is we fool ourselves. And then mm. you know, we sort of fool ourselves that this is available to everyone, that it is going to cure the world. And meanwhile, very impoverished countries don't have access, um, that it's the privileged who cut in line, who got it yep. first. Even we saw this with the boosters, it's like people who shouldn't be getting it are getting it, you know, because they have wealth or access or whatever. And you, you do see, you know, much like our noir world, like this is a corrupt system that is, it's not evenly distributed to everyone. No, it's not. Absolutely. How's it been for you working in COVID? You know, we're up here in uh, rural Connecticut. So it's not a bad place to be. Um, It would have been entirely different if we had still been in New York city where we lived for many years. Um, our life fundamentally did not change that much happy to Mm. report, um we live in a relatively small community where you know we didn't see people with great frequency we do have a lot of outdoor space so we would see people you know very small gatherings yeah you know stand around 10 feet away from each other all of that um so that part was a struggle the isolation part was able to get some work done, which is nice. You know, part yeah, of the good. life as a writer is you need that isolation anyway. Um, but we do know people that it did take a toll on and we still have a lot of friends in the city. And that was just a completely different experience. Yeah, it
0: was a nightmare in New York. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it was the same, the same in London and
1: yeah, there. absolutely,
0: and again, because I live in a fairly rural area as well, you know, I was able to be away from it in a sense. But um, well, nowhere was untouched, and you know, and I, I have friends in the same boat. But in some ways, on the other hand, and I, I don't want to equate this. I'm not I'm not for one second suggesting this is you know important. But um, I wouldn't be talking to you if it hadn't been for the COVID thing, in a sense, because now we go to we do do, do the Zoom meetings and things. You it's know, true. You know, so in some ways, it it has that advantage in the writer's world. What's next for you? It's always a kind of weird question because we could talking about Just Thieves, which is just being released as a book now. But obviously, as the writer, you're, you're ahead of that. Um, what are, yes. What's next for you? It, it, th- this has been a little bit different. And I think
1: it's part of the pandemic that did that. So, you know, as a writer, I sort of have to clear my head of the characters who are in the book right. to move on to the next thing. And it took a little while for this book to come out because of the pandemic. So I'm sort of ahead. So now I sort of have to go back and start thinking about these characters that I was sort of done with a year ago. And it's this weird sort of these universes colliding, happily colliding. But um, luckily, the next one, the next one, I think, is, you know, similar themes. But it is it is post-pandemic. Um, And it's about a guy who has sort of, in his mind, gone above and beyond in his work life. And he has sort of a a middle class existence and then is fired sort of as the pandemic ends. And this resentment sort of builds to where he flips and sort of become, develops like this criminal attitude. Right, um, yeah.
0: Take, takes out a lot of his rage against his former employer so you you are developing some of the themes you've already developed in just thieves and yeah yeah yeah
1: i'm mm. not you know the, the those themes are near and dear to my heart and mm. as we've talked about they are sort of what i think is the essence of noir so it's yes. like you know they're going to be there you know obviously the 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 characters in the story are completely different. And I hope that those themes are, you know, subsumed in more
0: interesting ways in different ways. Yeah. But they'll they'll be there, that's for sure. Great. I look forward to that. We have talked about a few authors, but how about a couple of recommendations? I mean, books, films, old, new? Uh one of the
1: people that I just discovered and you probably know him and i'm not sure how to pronounce his last name french writer jean patrick uh manchette ah yeah right yes yes is, indeed. That, is that how you pronounce his last manchette, name yeah yeah and uh i've been devouring him I, I really like him um what i don't have a good basis for is um British noir so maybe you can give me some recommendations on that I just did rewatch Brighton Rock the other day which is still a fantastic film and I love that novel too
0: oh yeah well Graham Greene yeah absolutely yeah um yeah if I was going to recommend somebody I think uh way up the list I would probably put Ted Lewis
1: I don't know if you know Ted Lewis
0: but you 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 maybe know Get Carter the film
1: yeah I have read
0: Get Carter but not nothing else well, his best novel, I would argue, is GBH. Okay. And that's that's a fantastic read. Um, so I certainly would recommend that from a British perspective. Um, and another writer who deserves much wider recognition and is um, absolutely brilliant is uh, Derek Raymond. And what I would say to everybody as well is, whatever you do, don't watch the Sylvester Stallone remake of Get Carter. No. Which is terrible. <laughs> yes. I did
1: see the um, Pulp, which was the same oh, yeah. sort of the same crew that made Get Carter, which is totally different. And I, I have some friends who just hate that movie. I actually yeah. like it because I, I think I was able to sort of like dismiss Get Carter and a, sort of appreciate what they had going on. But that's a crazy movie.
0: Well, I always wonder when you do remakes, what you make them for, because you, you either get the sensibilities of the original film. Um, and then it makes sense. Or you have to be telling your own story completely, and so you have to be saying something completely different. But sometimes they just seem to want to try and rehash something they didn't understand in the first place, and then you wind up with I a real- I think that's the case with that film. I don't, I don't think they understood. They, they
1: didn't understand what that first movie was trying to do, or yeah, the no. novel. you know. And, and one, it's like if you're going to Americanize that film, they did it in such a horrible way to begin with. But, yeah, it was a failed failed thing. But we we do live in a time where it's like they're going to remake everything. I mean, there's remakes of remakes at this point, which is unfortunate. And what irritates me is, you know, I'll do a search to see what's on and see get Carter and get excited. Then it's always the
0: yeah. Celeste Stallone version. <laughs> they remade um, Brighton Rock and did a pretty good job of that. I have not seen the remake. Yeah, there is a remake for that, um, and that was quite good. Again, I'll put some notes at the end, you know, on, on the title page so people can see that. There's a writer I think you might be interested in because the French, as you pointed out, they got noir um, and gave back. You know, they took American fiction and, and they gave it back with this French adaptation to it. And and that's what the world of noir kind of comes from. But there's a more modern writer. died in 2010, so I think his writing would be through the 90s into the, the early 80s. And um, that's Pascal Garnier. Oh, th- I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, it's one of those writers where he's sort of just become, I wouldn't say popular over here, to be honest, but he's been translated into English anyway. His novels are available in English in this country, certainly. Um, and he's an incredibly interesting writer. If you find Manchette interesting, I
1: mm-hmm. think you'll
0: find him interesting, too. So so that's one people could look out for, too. Um, how about a film? from the 1940s or 30s, maybe something that you think everybody should try and catch up with. Cause it was a golden age of, of cinema too. Wasn't it really?
1: It was. Um, I'm trying sorry. To I put you some, on
0: the spot a bit there.
1: Yeah. I know. I'm just, just trying to think of my dates here. Um, you know, this is probably fifties, but like Kansas. Well, that, City no, that's fine. I'll yeah. 50s. Kansas City Confidential is a great little great crime writer. film. Um, and then, you know, if we're going to go the French route, Melville Mel- Melville the stuff is amazing. Um, and obviously the Rafifi, which I have, have yeah.
0: a little nod to Rafifi in there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but now you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a classic film. Yeah. This is so much stuff that um, I, it's nice to keep this stuff alive. You know, some writers, Chandler, nobody's going to forget Chandler and nobody forgets Hammett. Um, But people should also remember Chester Himes and a whole bunch of other writers, you know. Chester Himes is great.
1: And, yeah, and, you know, I do think, like, I think Dorothy Hughes Mm, deservedly, and I have not read that much. I think there's only three that are in print. I think she wrote, like, 14 novels, and I think only three are still in print, and those three... Uh, ride the pink pony expendable man and in a lonely place i think they rank right up there and uh, as we discussed you know i think she's getting at themes pretty quickly much quicker than other people did ptsd and and toxic masculinity and a lot of that um and her writing is fantastic too Um, yeah absolutely but it is true. It's like, and, you know, people ask me and I just talk about Chandler and Hammett a lot, but there's a lot of other
0: really good writers who are around at the same time. Mm. And I think one of the things I tend to find, as I said, I do read a lot of novels from that period because I get publishers send them to me. And um, there's, there's a, sometimes there's a lot of frankness in novels that those writers possibly weren't also writing uh, quite so, because they were mainstream, you know, they were writing stuff that had to be read. There's a lot of stuff that was on the border, sort of on the the stuff that was on the bookshelves um, in the dime stores and so on, you know, that actually has a a really pretty hard view of of society's problems, you know, the kind of stuff that really isn't going to get or wasn't going to get to the screen, at least not directly anyway.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've written about this in one of the essays, which is the the getaway, the novel. I don't know if you remember the novel compared to the
0: Steve McQueen. I honestly remember film. the film more now. To be yeah, it's yeah.
1: unfortunate. The mm. novel is crazy. So the mm. film sort of ends as they sort of are going to Mexico. They get a ride, and they sort of give the the yeah, guy that right. they get to ride with all the money. In the novel, they make it to Mexico in sort of this um, Eden for criminals. And so they go down there where they think they're going to spend the rest of their lives happy. And they literally become slaves in this community oh. and they have, yes. they have to spend all their money. And it's, the, and it is a very, one could argue heavy handed, but very much a critique of society. And yeah, that's like no, that's an total, interesting
0: twist. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Dante, uh, references as well and they they enter hell and they're not getting out
0: yeah i think that's a good point to end on gregory that's been fascinating thank you very much thank you a pleasure to talk to you well i really enjoyed that i hope you did too Just Thieves by Gregory Galloway is out now from Melville House Press in hardback. There's a link on the accompanying notes for this episode. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but for now, thank you very much for listening. Bye.